lose. This structure incentivizes VCs to raise as much money as possible. In Silicon Valley, the top-tier VCs regularly close funds of a billion dollars and up. The problem is that the more money the VCs raise, the larger exits they require. This is because a VC firm with a billion-dollar fund needs to put this money to work. It's not easy to invest a billion dollars in startups, and most VCs must place this money within the first three years of the fund's life. This means the larger funds are under pressure to invest huge sums of capital quickly. If a startup sells for $20 million, it means nothing to a larger venture fund, even if the return is 10 times or more. Just do the math. Let's say the fund invests $1 million and gets a return of 10 times. This seems respectable, but $10 million doesn't do much for a billion-dollar fund. It's just a rounding error. In other words, it was a waste of the VC's time. For this reason alone, the larger funds are looking for startups that exit at half a billion and up. That's the only way they can put enough money to work to meet their investors' expectations. The thing VCs value most is their time. Their money might seem unlimited, but their time is not. Performing due diligence on startups takes a lot of time. So does filling board seats. The VCs can only sit on so many boards and be effective. So they naturally limit the number of deals they do. This means they filter out all startups that won't need a lot of money. In other words, they want companies that grow large and fast enough so they can literally feed millions of dollars to them over their lifetime. Hence, the explosion of unicorns. VCs know that most of their investments will fail to deliver the necessary returns, but they also know that all it takes is one or two big winners to pay for all the losers and make a tidy profit. They want the next ShowMe, DocuSign, Spotify, or Dropbox. These are called fund makers because a single startup can return the entire fund. Over the years, the larger funds have become laser-focused on these types of deals to the exclusion of all else. Your startup may have an incredibly good chance of becoming a profitable business, but that doesn't matter to VCs. A small or medium-sized business isn't interesting to them. If your company doesn't have the potential to grow into a billion-dollar business, it doesn't work with their business model. This means that all of Silicon Valley is tied into a hit-driven system where everyone is looking for the next billion-dollar blockbuster. There are always exceptions to the rule. But if you're coming to Silicon Valley, there's no use in bucking the trend. It's going to make it hard, if not impossible, to get funded. I'm telling you this now because not every business is suited for venture capital. In fact, very few businesses are right for VC funding. The majority of companies are simply better off without venture capital funding. I spend a lot of time with entrepreneurs at the early stages, trying to figure out whether their businesses are a good fit for Silicon Valley. More often than not, they aren't a perfect match, and the startup needs to either pivot or adjust its expectations. Unless a startup can show that it's in a position to grow exponentially over the next three years, meaning it will hit at least $50 million in revenue by year three, there's really no point in approaching venture capital. It's just a waste of time. Many startups complain about this, but that's how the world works. If your model isn't right for VCs, wishful thinking and lots of grumbling won't help. 21. Know your valuation. Investors love to ask startups, What's your valuation? It's sort of an unfair question because most startup founders, especially in the early stages, are clueless. In fact, the investors have a far better idea than the entrepreneurs. So why do they bother asking? It's because investors don't want to bid against themselves. They want to see if the startup's valuation is in line with their own estimation. If the entrepreneur comes out with a lower valuation than expected, the investor is happy. If it's higher, then it's time to begin negotiating. The answer also tells the investor how knowledgeable the entrepreneur is. Savvy CEOs have a good sense for what the market will bear. So, how do you know your true valuation? The answer is simple. You don't. 
You can never know your actual valuation except immediately after closing a priced round. Your value at that time is whatever investors are willing to pay for the shares. This is true of any company, whether public or private. However, stocks that are public are constantly being traded, so everyone has a clearer idea of the value. With a startup, it's another story. I like to compare values of private companies to that of real estate. How much is a particular home worth? The size and features of the house itself aren't always the best indicators. Exactly the same house in a rich neighborhood will have more value than in a poorer part of town. The only way to know the value is to look at what other homes in the same neighborhood are selling for, and then approximate the value based on recent sales data. In the old days, you'd have to ask a real estate agent for this information, but today you can simply look it up online. Unfortunately, with startups, it's not so simple. There are many types of startups covering a huge range of industries. To complicate matters, much of the funding data is private, so it's not easily accessed. In most cases, the only people to turn to are the investors themselves. Investors who place money in enough startups can get a pretty good idea of what companies are worth in a particular market. The greater the deal flow, the better the data. Investors form a model in their minds which approximates what startups at different stages in various sectors are worth. When a new startup walks in the door, they automatically get mapped to this mental model. If the price is too high, the investor will balk. I had a startup come to Founders Space and tell me his company was worth $15 million pre-money. I assured him this was too high. He'd be lucky to get half that. He didn't even have a product yet. It was just an idea. Yes, his team was excellent, but they were too early for that type of valuation. But the entrepreneur was insistent. He truly believed he was right. To break the impasse, I introduced him to some investors so that he could get a better feel for the market. As I predicted, the investors loved the startup but couldn't get over the price. Even with this feedback, the entrepreneur persisted, refusing to lower his valuation. It was frustrating to watch. The entrepreneur went on for another year trying to raise money. Eventually, he came back to me with the original valuation I had quoted. Only the market had moved on, and it was much harder to raise money in that sector. Two years from our initial meeting, the startup wound up closing funding at exactly the valuation I had estimated. The lesson here is to get lots of feedback on your valuation early and adjust your expectation accordingly. It doesn't matter what you think your startup is worth. It's only worth what the market will pay for it. If you want to raise money, you have to be in line with the market. I recommend that every startup founder meet with as many people inside the venture capital business as possible right before fundraising. Don't ask them for money. Just ask them for a quick estimate of your company's value. At the same time, go to other startup founders and ask what they are seeing in the market. I repeat, the more data you can gather, the better. There are also sites like TechCrunch's Crunchbase that will show you what deals are closing at. On AngelList, Angel.co, and other funding sites, investors can see what all the startups on the site are listing as their valuations. If you have access, you can quickly get a sense for the market. Once you've assimilated all this data, you'll have a pretty good idea of what your startup is worth in Silicon Valley. But you still won't have any clue how much it's worth in Beijing or Berlin. Just as with homes, valuations differ based on location. A home in New York is worth far more than the exact same home in Detroit. The valuation of a startup changes depending on where it is raising capital. Sometimes it's higher, like in China, where valuations are still sky high. And sometimes it's significantly lower, like in most European countries. It all depends on the supply of venture capital and the demand for startups. I advise startup founders to pick a valuation right in the middle of the range. If you go too low, you're leaving money on the table. But if you go too high, it will just slow down the fundraising process. It's better to price your startup in the middle of the bell curve. If you're really hot, you'll probably wind up with multiple bidders and have your pick of investors. This is a great position to be in. Just like with real estate, if you can get a bidding war going, 
you not only can boost your valuation and get better terms, but also shorten your funding raising time. 22. Love your lawyer. Lawyers, lawyers, lawyers. We love to hate them. Yes, you need a lawyer. I don't recommend raising venture capital in Silicon Valley without one. Other countries may be different, but in the United States, I assure you that it's a big mistake not to get legal representation. So I'm going to tell you what to look for in a lawyer. The first choice you have to make is whether to go with a big name law firm or a boutique one. The big law firms have a number of advantages. They bring credibility to your company. They have a brand, top lawyers, global connections, and robust legal teams covering everything from corporate law to IP, internet protocol, and litigation. The most respected firms also offer a halo effect. No top firm would risk its reputation on a startup that it thought couldn't succeed. The top Silicon Valley firms act as filters for investors. They select the best startups and introduce them to venture capitalists on a routine basis. These firms include Wilson-Sonsini, Fenwick & West, DLA Piper, Cooley, Goodwin, Perkins Coie, and many others. I won't name them all because it's a long list. If you land with a top firm, you should leverage their relationships to get warm introductions to the venture community. Keep in mind, the amount and quality of the introductions depends on the partners you are dealing with and how much they believe in your startup. Some partners will bend over backward to help you get funded, while others only want to handle your legal work. It's smart to figure out who you're dealing with right from the beginning. A smart indicator of how hard the partners will work on your behalf is whether or not they're willing to defer all payments until after you close funding. This can be a lifesaver for a struggling startup. Typically, they cap the deferment. The cap can range from $5,000 to $50,000 or even more, depending on how much they believe in you. A large deferment means the firm is invested in your success, and they are more likely to make valuable introductions. They're motivated because if you don't succeed, they don't get paid. But don't fool yourself. They aren't doing this for free. You will pay for it on the back end. The more risk the firm takes, the more reward they expect, and big firms charge big fees. Top lawyers can run $1,000 an hour or more in the Valley. So be prepared for some hefty legal bills down the road. One safety precaution is to try to get some sort of package deal where costs are spelled out in advance for everything from company formation to patents and closing the Series A round. It's hard, but sometimes they will do this. It can't hurt to ask. The other option is to go with smaller firms or individual lawyers. They often don't have the reputation to connect you with top investors or the deep pockets to defer payment, but they can be a lot cheaper. I always tell startups to negotiate with all lawyers. The greatest leverage you have is right at the beginning. Once you sign with them, it's harder, but not impossible, to get a discount. If it's a small firm, you can usually get a package deal. Sometimes they'll include everything from incorporating your company to filing provisional patents and setting up a stock option plan in a single flat fee structure. You will have to pay up front, but this is a wonderful way to save money. They are doing it to win your business away from the bigger firms, and it can pay off down the road. A lot of the smaller firms and individuals lack the halo effect and global networks, but they are just as competent as the big guys. They can do very good work at a much lower hourly rate. The downside is that you almost always have to pay up front, and if you don't have money, that can be a deal breaker. Money problems aside, the most important thing to look for in a firm is the actual partner you'll be working with. Nothing matters more than the quality of the lawyer. You can have the best firm in the world, but if you don't get along with the lawyer, it's a disaster. Before you sign up, you need to ask some questions. Will the lawyer you're talking to be actively involved in negotiating the deals and finalizing the agreements, or will junior associates handle the work? In the larger firms, chances are junior people will do most of the heavy lifting. Who are these junior associates? Are they competent? 
you need to meet them because you'll probably be spending more time with them than with anyone else. Make sure to ask these questions right up front. Don't be shy. It's part of the process. Also, take the time to interview more than one law firm. You are hiring them and want to make sure their culture, personalities, and values mesh with your own. Cost aside, what do you need to look for in good lawyers? The most important thing is the type of advice they will give you. Bad lawyers give you fuzzy advice. For instance, you may ask about a specific term in an agreement, only to have them respond with a series of options, and then begin explaining the subtle legal ramifications of each choice. Trust me, this isn't what you're paying them for. You don't need a legal education. You just need straightforward business advice. Usually, by the time they are done explaining, you are no closer to understanding the real issues than when you started. Why do lawyers do this? Because they feel it's your job to make the tough decisions. They are only there to provide legal counsel. <laughs> Sorry, but this is nonsense. That's not the job of a good lawyer. The lawyers I appreciate are the ones like Allison Tilly at the law firm Pillsbury. She was my lawyer through some tough times with two different startups. She understands how to give clear, definitive business advice. Whenever I asked her difficult questions, she'd reply, I suggest doing this. There's some risk, but it's your best option given the circumstances. She knows because she's been through this many times with many startups. You need an attorney who understands how to think like a startup. Risk is inherent in everything a startup does. There's no way to eliminate risk. You just have to manage it the best you can. A great lawyer won't bury you in legalese. She will tell you clearly which risks are worth taking and which aren't. The next quality I look for in a lawyer is the dedication to be there when you need her. When I was negotiating deals for my startups, it was often do or die. I was down to my last penny, and I needed the deal to close or the company would go belly up in a matter of weeks. Some lawyers simply aren't responsive enough. You'll be in the middle of negotiations, and they won't call you back for a day or two. That can kill the momentum. I want my lawyer on the phone the same day, helping push through the changes so we can make the deal happen. Allison was always there for us when we needed her most, but not all lawyers are like this. I've seen the damage slow responses can cause. I worked with one startup whose lawyer took weeks to respond to every request. The CEO was going nuts because every little thing took forever. I told the CEO bluntly, fire that lawyer. He didn't take my advice, saying they were too far along. For the next six months, I had to listen to endless complaints. Remember, lawyers are hired guns. You can let them go any time. Legal documents are easy to hand off to a new lawyer. They're 98% boilerplate. Any halfway decent lawyer can pick up where another left off. In fact, it's much easier to replace your lawyer than your lead engineer. Always do your homework. Don't just interview the lawyer. Interview the clients. Find out which startups worked with the lawyer. Take them out to lunch and grill them. Find out if the lawyer is super responsive, provides clear-cut answers, knows the law inside and out, and does not pad the legal bills. The last one is the hardest. How the heck do you know? In the end, the lawyer is a crucial part of your team, and you need someone who can back you up. I've learned so much from my lawyers. The good ones will actually teach you how to negotiate an agreement, making clear what terms are worth fighting over and what to give in on. I owe a huge debt to Billy Schwartz at Morrison and Forrester, who helped me out with my first startup. For a flat fee, he spent days teaching me and my partner all the intricacies of negotiating licensing agreements. This type of lawyer is rare, but they do exist. My partner and I have learned so much over the years that we now handle most of our smaller deals without involving our lawyers. Attorneys we negotiate with often think my partner is a lawyer because of the way she drafts or revises contracts. You just need to know when it's worth hiring someone and when the risk is so small, you can manage it yourself. A lot of the top firms, like Oric, have put a huge number of legal templates online. You can download them for free by searching for Oric Toolkit. If you're a cash-strapped startup, cannot get a deferred payment, 
and are comfortable with legalese, this may be your best option. I'm not saying don't use a lawyer, but if you can't afford one, do whatever you have to do to move forward. I use these templates when appropriate. They're pretty solid. They've been thoroughly reviewed by some of the top lawyers in the world. As long as you stick closely to the template and understand the terms you are committing to, you should be fine. If you're a bootstrapped startup, I wouldn't hesitate to go to the websites of every major Silicon Valley law firm and download whatever free legal forms are available, and then use them whenever it makes sense. To save money, a good strategy is to open negotiations yourself, use a proven template, and then bring in the lawyer at the very end for a final run-through. This can cut the legal bill down by as much as 90%. Heck, I've even downloaded end-user license agreements from Microsoft and Google, then modified them to meet my needs. I figured that if it was good enough for the largest corporations in the world, it should be just fine for my startup. Any self-respecting lawyer would advise against this. But seriously, what bootstrapped startup can afford to spend thousands of dollars on legal agreements when it hasn't even proven out its idea? If it's the choice between having no end-user licensing agreement or creating one inspired by Microsoft or Google, why not go for it? You can always bring a lawyer in to update and customize your terms and conditions after you land funding. Keep in mind that templates work great for simple things like NDAs, non-disclosure agreements, authorization and release forms, independent contractor agreements, and so on. However, it starts to get tricky on more complex transactions, like negotiating a priced round. In this case, it's wise to bring in the best lawyers you can afford. You can't see the pitfalls, and if you screw up, there can be a high price to pay down the road. Things like liquidation preferences and board control are critical to your company's future, and you don't want to risk losing everything. Don't be penny-wise and pound-foolish. Like I said, it's all about managing risk. In the end, use your best judgment and don't stress too much. Everything you do has risk. Legal is just another one. 23. Your Investor Pitch Deck Creating the pitch deck that you use when making a presentation to investors is different from creating the full investor deck. The pitch deck is the PowerPoint presentation you'll show to investors in person, while the full deck is the PowerPoint presentation you send to investors for them to review on their own. The presentation pitch deck must be concise and visual, with as few words as possible on each slide, while the full deck is longer and more complete. It's meant to be read when you're not in the room. Here is a template for the presentation pitch deck that I give to all my startups. This is designed for a three-minute pitch. It's short and to the point. I keep the slides to a minimum. You can add more slides for a longer presentation. Slide 1. Title page. Show your company name and logo in big, clear, bold typeface. Taglines should only be a few words long. Include a beautiful picture that captures the essence of your business. Add your name, phone number, and email in the lower right corner. Slide 2. Problem. What problem are you solving for your customers? Make the slide as visual as possible with only a few words. Slide 3. Big Vision. Solution. What is the big opportunity here? How will you change your industry? Slide 4. Your product. What does your product do? How does it work? What benefits does your product offer your customers? If you have a short, powerful product video, show it here. Keep your video under 30 seconds. If your video isn't great, do not show it. Slide 5. Addressable Market How large is the addressable market in dollars? How many customers need your product or service? How much are they willing to pay? Slide 6. Competition Who are your competitors? What is your secret sauce? What makes you different? Slide 7. Business model. How will you make money? What is your pricing strategy? What are your estimated profit margins? Slide 8. Revenue forecast and milestones. What's your expected revenue growth? 
What are your current and future burn rates? What are your key milestones? Slide 9. Traction. What's your traction? Include customers, revenue, strategic partners, and signed deals. Include metrics like customer growth and engagement. Also, include any validation such as press, surveys, and letters of intent. Slide 10. Team. Show your team. Include big, friendly photos of each team member. Below each photo, have their names and titles. Include one or two accomplishments for each member, such as a prestigious award, most recent job, or university degree. Do not use more than 10 words total to describe each team member, including name, title, and accomplishments. Only include the top three to six team members. Be sure to mention the total number of employees in the company at the bottom. Slide 11. The Ask. How much have you raised to date? How much money are you raising now and at what valuation? How far will this money take you? What milestones will you hit? Include your company name and contact info. If you follow this advice, you should be in good shape to pitch investors, but keep in mind this is only a template. Feel free to modify it to your startup's particular needs. Every business is unique, and you may want to add or remove slides. The one thing you should keep in mind is that less is often more. You should design each slide so that the investors can grasp the key points within a few seconds of seeing it. Then they can focus on you and what you're saying. The worst presentations are the ones that are crammed full of text. I can't tell you how exhausted investors feel when they look at a screen with nothing but writing. Instead of thinking of your pitch deck as a written document, think of it as a visual stimuli. It's the background, while you are the star of the show. Good luck. 24. Selling Your Story When I sit in meetings with the top venture capitalists, they often brag about how data-driven they are. They went to Harvard or MIT, and they like to say all that matters are the numbers. But then I've watched them after an entrepreneur tells a powerful story, and everything they said goes out the window. Like all people, investors distill facts down to feelings. Every fact is only as important as someone feels it is. No matter how logical investors might believe they are, they always wind up going with how they feel at the end of the day. This is why the story matters more than anything else in your pitch, and you shouldn't be telling a story just about your product. If you can make it personal, it gives you an edge over the competition. Investors want to know who you are. They want to understand you as a person. After all, they are investing in the team, first and foremost. They need to see what drives you and get a feel for what brought your team together. In the end, they have to trust you. There's no better way to build trust in a short time than through a story that reveals your values and motives. You might believe you don't have any personal stories to tell, but that's not true. Everyone has a story to tell. I don't care how boring you are. Even if you've been living in a cave your whole life, there's a story buried somewhere in your past that you can dig out. If you're going to capture the attention of investors, you need to find this story. Great stories come from the heart. They tell who you are, why you're doing what you're doing, and what it means to the world. In order to come up with the best story possible, begin by answering these four questions. 1. Why did you start this company? 2. What makes you so passionate about this? 3. What will upend and disrupt your industry? 4. What impact will it have on the lives of your customers? Great stories combine your personal story, your product story, and your company's mission. Now, let me tell you a story that illustrates the power of narrative. When Verizon launched a multi-million dollar contest to award the top innovators around the world, one of the categories for the competition was education. Since my first startup was a game company that published business learning games like Gazillionaire and Zapitalism, I thought we were a good fit. However, because there were thousands of applicants, I knew it was a long shot. I filled out the application as quickly as possible and forgot about it. A month later, to my surprise, I learned we'd made the first cut. 
With each new round, I became more confident of our chances. By the time we reached the finals, I was determined to win the grand prize. At this point, I had to craft my story and perfect my pitch. I knew that the in-person presentation to the panel of judges was the most important part of the process. When the day came to present to the judges, I made sure to include three main points. First, I told my personal story, emphasizing how I'd been creating nonviolent learning games ever since high school, because I believed it was the best way to educate young people. Second, I tied my games into the biggest problem our nation was facing at the time. This was right after the subprime mortgage crisis, when people all across the country were losing their homes because they didn't understand basic finances. Hundreds of thousands of hardworking Americans had signed up for adjustable rate loans they could not repay. Third, I explained how our young people could go from kindergarten through high school without ever taking a single class on financial literacy. Even the majority of college graduates know little to nothing about loans. Compound interest and financial planning. This is why so many Americans are in debt and can't get out. Families are not only losing their homes but also their life savings, money set aside for retirement, and their children's college funds, all because they lack a proper education. I reiterated how we cannot afford to let this continue. I went on to tell several stories of how players of our games had learned the dangers of high interest rates and thanked us for helping them cut up their credit cards and pay off their debts. I also highlighted how schools and colleges were using our software to teach business, math, and economics all around the world. I wrapped up my speech by stating we were going to use the prize money to bring our game Zapitalism to mobile phones. At the end of my speech, when I looked into the judges' eyes. I knew that I'd captured them. I could taste victory. Over the next several weeks, Verizon sent a crew to film us and kept hinting that we were one of their very top picks. As you can imagine, we were excited. The grand prize was one million dollars, and we didn't have to give up any equity in our company. It was too good to be true. The day of the awards ceremony finally came around. My partner and I sat in the audience, waiting to hear if we'd be called on stage. They started with fifth place and worked their way up the list. I was sure that our name would be the last one called. However, when they came to second place, I heard the host shout out "Zapitalism." I couldn't believe it. We hadn't won first prize. Given the vibe I'd felt, I was certain we would come out on top. I should mention that second prize was eight hundred fifty thousand dollars, so I shouldn't have been disappointed. But my expectations were set high. How could someone have a better story than the financial crisis and educating young people? When the first place winner was announced, an Israeli guy came on stage. As he began to talk, I realized why he'd won. He had a better story. He passionately described how he developed his learning software to help his father, who suffered from a debilitating brain disease. It was a heart-wrenching story, and I couldn't help but feel for him. His product was not only good for society, but he had done it for his dying father. Now millions of kids around the world could use the same software to improve their lives. The best story always wins. Why? It's because human beings understand the world through stories. Ever since our prehistoric ancestors were living in caves, we would gather around campfires and tell one another stories of our lives and exploits. For generation upon generation, we have passed down knowledge and culture through storytelling. It's not a fluke that every major religion in the world is filled with parables. Just think of the Bible. It's much easier to remember and understand the stories than the other parts. The same is true with the news. It's all stories. You don't open up the Wall Street Journal and get a list of facts and numbers on the front page. You get interesting stories about people and events. Knowledge is packaged into stories because that's how we best assimilate and process information. Without the story, it's hard for most people to remember a string of facts. But once an emotional story is attached, it sticks. So when you're talking about your startup, remember it's the story that counts. That's what investors are going to walk away with. Most of the facts and figures will vanish from their memories as soon as they exit the room. But if your story makes an impact, 
it will remain with them. It's the startups with the best stories that get a callback the next day. 25. Qualifying Investors Just because an investor wants to meet with you, it doesn't mean it's a good thing. You need to be careful. Before you meet with any investors one-on-one, whether they heard your pitch at some event, found you on the web, or stumbled across an article about your startup, you need to thoroughly qualify them. Remember, your time is as valuable as theirs, if not more. They're usually rich, and you're struggling just to survive. You don't want to waste a precious day driving to a meeting only to find out the investor isn't serious. I've had startups fly to another city to meet with a potential investor only to find out that the angel doesn't have wings. The person just wanted to sell them something, like cloud hosting, advertising, or legal services. It's sad, but some unscrupulous people will pose as angel investors because they found it's an easy way to get startups to meet with them. Often, they will offer to trade their services for equity, but if you don't want what they're offering, you've just wasted your time. This is why I always tell every entrepreneur to qualify their leads. Whenever investors contact you out of the blue, not from a trusted source, there's one magic question you need to ask. Can you tell me when you made your last three investments? If they haven't invested in any startups in the past year, they probably are not a serious investor, and you'll be better off spending your time working on your business. When engaging investors, make sure to ask what sectors they are focused on and what stage they invest in. If you're early stage, but they only focus on later stage, then it's a no-go. If you're doing mobile apps, but they invest in biotech, it's a no-go. Now, if you just want to practice pitching, or if the investor is extremely well-connected, it may still be worth taking the meeting, but don't expect to walk away with funding. It probably won't happen. Always take the time to visit the investor's website in advance. Most VC firms will have the partner's bios listed on the site, along with their portfolio of investments. It's good to read everything before you meet, especially the bios of the people with whom you'll be talking. They may have connections or experience that can be of value to you, but if you don't know about their pasts, you won't be able to ask the right questions. You can also see what each partner in the firm focuses on. You might be meeting with the wrong person at that firm. On the website, pay special attention to the portfolio companies. Do you see any direct competitors? If you do, it's probably not a good fit. Keep in mind that the website is usually outdated and won't include many of the firm's recent investments, so it's a good idea to ask in advance if there are any conflicts of interest you should be aware of. If it's an angel investor, search online. Most angels in Silicon Valley have a profile on AngelList that includes their bio and recent investments. You should also Google the angel's name and see what comes up. I once found out that someone I was about to do business with had made his fortune through spamming. He had also been taken to court for illegal activities. This shocked me, to say the least, and I immediately cut off our relationship. But if I hadn't done my homework, I may have wound up taking his money, and that is not the type of person I would ever want involved in my business. 26. How to Talk to Investors After qualifying the investor, it's time for the one-on-one -on -one meeting. If it's an angel investor, these usually take place at coffee shops. If it's VCs, they'll probably invite you to their offices. In either case, you'll most likely get anywhere from 15 minutes to one hour to make your presentation. This isn't much time, so you need to use it efficiently. My advice is to dispense with the small talk. I'm not saying don't be friendly, but don't launch into a 20-minute discussion about your family or the latest basketball game. That's precious time taken away from presenting your business. You can say a few friendly words at the beginning, and that's enough. If the investor likes your company, there will be plenty of time to get to know each other later. Investors are busy people. They'll want you to cut to the chase, so start with a short overview. I'm a big fan of brevity. Shorter is always better. If they've heard your pitch already, give them a two-minute refresher. If they haven't heard your pitch or have someone new in the room, give them a full five minutes, but no longer. 
God forbid you should do a 20-minute nonstop presentation. Remember, more than anything, investors want to talk to you about your business. They don't want a one-way conversation. They want an interactive dialogue. If they interrupt your presentation with questions, go with the flow. Don't brush them off with quick answers. Asking questions is a sign they're engaged. According to a Harvard research study titled, It Doesn't Hurt to Ask, Question Asking Increases Liking, people who ask more questions, particularly follow-up questions, are better liked by their conversation partners and perceived as more responsive. This may seem like common sense, but you'd be surprised at how few questions entrepreneurs ask during their pitch. Most founders think they're supposed to do all the talking, when the opposite is true. Another trick is to avoid dominating the conversation. Don't feel compelled to be the authority on everything. I learned right after college, during my first series of job interviews, that the less I talked, the more likely I was to get an offer. Some people just love hearing themselves speak. If you're a good listener, they'll love you too. If the investors want to contribute ideas and dole out the advice, just relax and soak up the feedback. You may find that they've sold themselves on the deal without you having to do much. When talking to investors, avoid sales mode. No one wants to feel like they're being sold something. As soon as people feel like you're trying to sell them, their guard goes up and they become suspicious. Think of how you feel when you walk into a store and a high-pressure salesperson pounces on you, hungry for a commission. It's off-putting. This is why I coach startups to take an entirely different approach. Think of yourself as an advisor, not a CEO. Your job is to help the investors understand your business as thoroughly as possible, and then, if it's the right fit, they will decide to invest. Rufus Griscom, the founder of online parenting magazine and blog network Babbel, took this approach to an extreme. In his investor pitch, he went through the top five reasons investors should not put money into his company. This blatant honesty actually wound up working in his favor. By showing investors all the flaws, he not only won their trust, but he made them feel like trusted partners. Bringing on investors is like getting married. Nothing is more important than open, honest communication. Investors know this, and they are looking for entrepreneurs with whom they can collaborate. Griscom did the same thing two years later when it came time to sell his company. He was meeting with Disney executives, and instead of trying to convince them his startup was perfect in every way, he talked about how Babbel's back end was outdated and engagement was lower than anticipated. This put the Disney execs at ease. They felt like he wasn't trying to pull one over on them. In fact, he was the type of person they wanted in their organization. Disney wound up acquiring Babbel for $40 million. At some point in your conversations with investors, they're bound to ask a question you don't know the answer to. Instead of making up something, simply tell them you don't know, and you'll get back to them with the answer. You may appear ignorant, but you're being honest, which will earn you more points in the end. Occasionally, you'll be asked a question you don't want to answer, not because you don't know the answer or are hiding something, but because it will send you down a path that leads nowhere. I've had investors spend the entire time nitpicking my revenue forecast when we hadn't even launched our product. This is a waste of precious time during a pitch meeting. So I learned that instead of whipping out the spreadsheet upon request, which would only encourage a long, convoluted discussion, it was better to say, is it okay if I send it to you in a follow-up email? Then I'd move on to more important things. Last, you need to know if this investor is the right fit. As I said before, taking money from a VC is like getting married. The last thing you want is to get divorced, which usually means the CEO getting kicked out of the home. Trust me when I say there are certain investors out there who will make your life miserable. I've seen investors who caused so much trouble that the startups bought back their shares. It was better than continuing in a dysfunctional relationship. Your goal should be to find out as much about the individual partner and the firm as possible. What is their philosophy? Are they hands-on or hands-off? What value can they bring? How do they work with startups? Who will actually take a seat on the board?
Sometimes you'll be surprised to learn that it's not the partner you're talking to. Most important, you should get a list of references you can contact. It's vital before handing over a board seat that you talk to other entrepreneurs who have worked with this investor. When they give you references, you don't want the entrepreneurs who are wildly successful. They will almost always say nice things. What you want are the founders who failed. It's when the going gets tough that investors can get rough. They're often best pals when the startup is a rising star, but when it's crashing, some investors turn from Dr. Jekyll into Mr. Hyde. Keep in mind when you meet with entrepreneurs, they most likely won't want to badmouth the investor. Silicon Valley is a small community, so you have to become adept at reading between the lines. Beware if they say something like, oh, that investor was okay. It usually means the investor was a jerk or didn't offer much help. What you want to hear is that the investor was absolutely amazing. When the company was near collapse, the investor did everything possible to help the situation. And the entrepreneur would work with the same investor again in a heartbeat. In the end, you can never know if you're making the right choice. But if your gut says no, then you better listen. Don't become so desperate that you'll take anyone's money. You will regret that decision. Even if your company dies, it's far better than living with a dysfunctional board of directors. You need to be able to count on your board. You need to be able to trust them. They are your partners and will help determine the fate of your startup. Spend as much time as possible with your investors up front. Hang out on the weekends. Meet their families. The more you do together, the better you'll get to know who they really are. This isn't a waste. It's a wise down payment on the future. As I've said, the CEO's number one job is to build the team, and the investors are part of that team. Invest the effort in advance, and you'll reap the rewards on the back end. 27. Using Fear and Greed Captain Hoff, how do I close a deal? I've met with dozens of investors. They all seem interested, but no one will fund my company. What am I doing wrong? Whenever I hear this, I nod my head in sympathy. I was once in their shoes. I wasted huge amounts of time using the wrong approach on the wrong investors. So, let me give you the benefit of my learning. What I'm about to teach you not only applies to closing investment deals, but any other deal as well. If you want to sell something, whether it's your company, products, or services, this strategy works. I went from being one of the worst salespeople on the planet to consistently closing deals with investors, large corporations, strategic partners, and governments all over the world. The core techniques work across all categories, but for the sake of this book, I'm going to focus on raising venture capital. The first thing you have to understand is that you need a clearly defined sales path. You need to write down every step required to close the deal. Only when the money is in your bank account is the deal done. Anything short of this is wishful thinking. It's like making it to third base. It's nice, but you don't score until you reach home plate. Here are the 10 basic steps. 1. Meet with the investor. 2. Present your business plan. 3. Discuss and answer questions. 4. Cement the relationship. 5. Sign the term sheet. 6. Negotiate the agreement. 7. Go through due diligence. 8. Sign the final agreement. 9. Wait for the money. 10. Bingo! The hardest part is getting to number 5. Once you get the term sheet signed, you're over the hump. If the investor is reliable and you have no skeletons in your closet, you should be able to push the process through to completion. Where most startups get hung up, is cementing the relationship. They will meet with the same investors over and over, but the investors always seem to be sitting on the fence. They can't decide. They like what the startup is doing, but they're afraid of losing their money, reputation, or job. If you're meeting with angel investors, they're usually more afraid of losing their money. VCs tend to care more about their reputations, and corporate investors worry about their jobs. Whatever the case, you need to get them over the wall of fear, and the best way to do that is with greed. They must come to believe your startup is a big win. If it's a small or medium-sized opportunity, that's not enough. 
Even if it's a safer bet, the small wins aren't that interesting to investors because those don't do much for them, either financially or emotionally. To understand this, you need to take into account human psychology. If it's a small deal, who cares? The investors cannot brag about it. It won't propel their career forward, and it definitely won't make their reputation. Yes, they might make some money, but it's small money. What they want is big money because big deals get talked about. Our society places a huge emphasis on how successful people are, and unicorn-sized deals make headlines. Everything else gets buried. In their world, success equates with finding the next WhatsApp, Cloudera, MuleSoft, or TripAdvisor ahead of everyone else. That's what will earn them street cred, take them to the next level, and open doors. Greed is a powerful motivator, but greed alone is not enough. You still need to overcome their fears. I spent nearly a year running my startup from offices on Sand Hill Road. I was embedded in a Tier 1 VC firm, and I saw from the inside how it worked. The Silicon Valley venture community is an exclusive club. That's why top VC firms pay a small fortune for office space on famed Sand Hill Road. Fear and greed rule their lives. VCs are under tremendous pressure to bring in the next big deal. They need fund makers, but they're equally afraid of screwing up. If they champion a rotten deal and word gets around, their careers can take a nosedive. This is what you're up against. Most VCs mitigate this risk by having all-partner meetings. This means every partner in the firm gets together and hears the final pitch. Then it's a thumbs-up or a thumbs-down vote. Often, if a single partner nixes the deal, the firm passes. On the other hand, if the deal gets approved but the startup winds up performing poorly down the road, the fact that the entire partnership gave its seal of approval prevents anyone from saying, I told you so. As you can imagine, partner meetings take on special significance. No VC wants to risk presenting a silly deal to the other partners. What if the flaws are so obvious that the VC winds up looking like a fool in front of everyone? Think back to your high school days. It's the same thing. For this reason, many VCs are cautious. But once you understand the dynamics inside a venture firm, you realize not all of them act the same way. There are three types of VCs you can approach. Full partners, associates, and top dogs. Most entrepreneurs like to approach full partners, but often these are the worst ones to champion your business. It's because they have the most to lose. They are in mid-career, rising up the ladder of success, and don't want to take any risks that could knock them down a rung. A good strategy is to get an associate as your primary champion in the firm. Don't think that because the partner pushed you off to a lowly associate, you won't get funded. The opposite is often true. Partners like to have their associates do the dirty work. That way, when they invite the startup to make the full pitch at an all-partners meeting, if things go wrong... It's the associate who will take the fall. Associates are usually fresh out of college and hungry to make their mark. They are on the bottom rung of the ladder, so there's nowhere to go but up. They're also new to the culture and don't mind taking risks. If they believe in your startup, they'll go all out lobbying for you. Surprisingly, they also have a tremendous amount of sway inside most firms because they are young and Silicon Valley worships youth. The older partners often look to the associates as barometers of what's hot. It's incredible how much faith a venture capitalist with a 20-year track record will put in a young Harvard MBA with no business experience. The other champions worth having are top dogs. The top dogs have already proven themselves. They are industry icons. They no longer worry about their reputation. They are more likely to go out on a limb for you because even if the deal implodes, it won't affect them. Of course, there are exceptions to every rule. For instance, if the firm is smaller, a lot of these dynamics don't play out. Or if the partner is simply impervious to what others think, that individual will take more risks. My point is that you have to be strategic about how you approach VC firms. The more you understand the dynamics of a particular firm and psychology of your champion, the better you can navigate the treacherous path. What you need to understand is who wins and who loses by pushing your deal forward. 
what risks your champion is willing to take, and each person's mental state. I felt the pain of navigating these firms. I remember how hard it was to raise capital. Often, I'd spend months nurturing relationships with specific partners in a firm and finally get them to invite me to the all-partners meeting. It was my big chance to close, and then one person in the meeting would give the deal a thumbs down, and it was dead. Back to square one. All my efforts were for naught. I learned the hard way that you can't let it drag on for months. You need to orchestrate it right from the start. You must let the investors know there's competition for the deal, and if they don't move fast to close, you won't be around. It always comes down to fear and greed. To get investors to bite, their fear of losing the deal has to be greater than their fear of losing their money. 28. Managing Your Investor Pipeline When raising capital, you'll need to fill your pipeline with potential investors. If you don't have enough prospects, it's hard to gain momentum and close in a reasonable time. A good rule of thumb is to have approximately 10 different investors in your pipeline at any one time. Some may be early in the process, while others are further along. The reason 10 is the ideal number is because your goal is to have at least two investors commit to the deal around the same time. This way, you can run them in parallel and get the best terms possible. The only leverage a startup has is competition for the deal. If you only have one investor on the hook, this investor is in the catbird seat. He can slow down talks and negotiate every point. There's no pressure to close. Conversely, if you're talking to more than 10 investors at once, you get spread so thin, it's hard to manage the process efficiently. That's why 10 is the magic number. Once you get multiple investors interested, you need to think about how to manage them. One strategy is to get a strong lead investor and then keep piling on more investors. A strong lead will often leverage relationships to bring on additional investors. Lots of startups use this approach. The more investors you add to the mix, the more momentum builds toward closing. Keep in mind that this only works if you have a strong and fully committed lead investor. Adding more investors to a weak lead is a recipe for disaster. For my third startup, we brought together our two strongest investors, each of whom had fully committed to the deal but couldn't cover the entire round, and this was enough to push us across the finish line. The other strategy that works is to keep the investors completely separate and have them compete against one another. They will ask you repeatedly who else you're talking to, but resist the temptation to tell them. I learned the hard way that investors don't always do what they say. A weak, undecided investor can poison the well. If you put a vacillating investor with a semi-committed one, it can sow the seeds of doubt and cause the deal to disintegrate. As a rule of thumb, if you aren't 100% sure that an investor is on board and committed, never introduce this person into the mix. If you use these principles when managing your investor pipeline, you should do fine. The more carefully you orchestrate the process, the more rewarding it becomes. 29. Keeping a Poker Face Please, never act desperate. VCs like to fund companies that don't need their money. Nothing is more attractive than a CEO who is so confident she can walk away from the deal. It's just like dating. Playing hard to get works. No one wants to date someone who's desperate. I've actually had entrepreneurs come up to me at events and say, Captain Hoff, you've got to help me find investors. If you don't, my company will be out of business next week. Please, please help me. I feel so sorry for them, but this type of pitch doesn't work. Even if I made an introduction, their desperation would be enough to scare off any potential suitors. After all, who wants to invest in a company where the CEO is days away from throwing in the towel? An even worse scenario is when the company has real value. If the investors realize they have leverage, they'll begin to squeeze. I've known startups that had to accept cram-down rounds where all the existing shareholders suffered massive dilutions. Meanwhile, the new investors took control of the company. Showing any sign of vulnerability is the surest way to screw up the negotiations. I learned this lesson the first time I ever tried to raise venture capital. I made the mistake of letting our investors know how much we desperately needed the cash, and guess what happened? 
They cut our valuation in half. Furious, we walked away from the deal, even though we were almost entirely out of money. It was two painful months later before we had another VC willing to invest. Even though we were then on the verge of bankruptcy and our employees were about to quit because we hadn't paid them, I told our investors that I'd have to find other VCs if they couldn't commit to the deal. It worked. This may sound too good to be true, but we closed the round and had the money in our bank account within a few weeks. Whenever pitching investors, no matter how you feel inside, keep an inscrutable poker face on the outside. You have to act like you don't need their money, even when you desperately do. 30. 